this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by Industrial Device Investments. One of the ways to sell your business is through a minority or majority recapitalization. What's that? Well, it's where a private equity group or PE firm buys your business. You get to take some of the money off the table and keep your job running your company as CEO and shareholder. Now, the problem with a lot of these so-called PE deals is that the investor not always, but in many cases, is a money guy or gal with no clue how to run a business. And that's why industrial device investments is so different. They are operators, just like you, and they understand what it takes to build a business. The firm was founded by a guy named John Dalton. Look him up on LinkedIn. He's an engineer and spent years at GE and Black & Decker before becoming a full-time investor. Here's the thing. You want maximum value for your business and a bright future for your employees. And that's where Industrial Device Investments comes in. They speak your language, not the jargon of the finance guys. And they invest their own money and don't answer to outside shareholders. An interesting option for sure. Visit idinvest.net to find out more. That's idinvest.net. Check them out. So what are you going to sell your company? My guess is your answer to that question is something like in the next five to 10 years. That's when you'll have the business just perfect. You'll have it up to a certain size that you'll be able to get exactly what you want for the company. The problem is you never know when the ideal time to sell your company is. And in many cases, it's when someone's willing to buy it. And in my next guest, Rand Fishkin's case, he learned this lesson the hard way. He had an offer to buy his company, Moz, from a company called HubSpot. They were offering a cool $25 million. The interesting thing is that $25 million was not just cash. It was cash and HubSpot stock. HubSpot stock over the next few years would go on to grow in value more than tenfold. Ten times the value that it was when Rand was being offered his $25 million in cash and stock. He ended up turning it down and ultimately would live to regret that decision for a long, long time. Your company is best bought, not sold. And then when you get an offer, an attractive offer, take it seriously, I think is the advice from Rand Fishkin. Here to tell you the rest of the story is Rand himself. Rand Fishkin, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. It is so good to speak with you because I, a mutual friend of ours, Stefan Gott, uh, sent me your book, Lost and Founder. And I get sent quite a few books, and I could not put this book down. I think it is brilliant. And it really exposes the world of entrepreneurship, kind of the underbelly in many cases of entrepreneurship. So congrats on the book. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, I've been uh, thrilled to see how many folks it's it's resonated with and um, what a different, you know, a broad variety of entrepreneurs and, and folks in, in business and medicine. And last night I was uh, having dinner with someone who was in the educational uh, school system and talking about how he and his staff all read the book. So wow. yeah, exciting. 
Good for you. Good for you. So let's get into the story behind Lost and Founder. You started a company at the time. It was called SEO Moz. It quickly morphed into a company called Moz, M-O-Z. Tell me about what Moz does. Sure. Yeah. Moz makes uh, software for professional SEOs, uh, search engine optimization marketers, and, you know, essentially helps people do things like keyword research, figure out what words and phrases people are typing into Google and how often and uh, what to do on their pages. It crawls their websites and finds problems and opportunities for them. It helps them build links and sees where their competition is getting links, all those kinds of things. Uh, competes with companies like SEM Rush and Ahrefs um, and others. And, and Moz is about, just for reference for your audience, so Moz started in 2003 as a blog uh, that I just was doing in, you know, on the side. It became a consulting company, uh, uh, I think, in 2005, and then switched to software in 07, uh, after which we raised a little bit of venture capital, and I became CEO for the next seven years. We grew to about $30 million in revenue uh, in 2014, and then I stepped down as CEO, promoted my longtime chief office, operating officer to the role, and she is uh, Maz's CEO today. And Maz is about... It's about a $50 million company uh, in 2018. Fantastic. Fantastic. And it's a great story. Take me back, if you would, all the way back to uh, kind of 2003, 4, and 5. You were in business with your mom, if I got That's that right. That's right. Yeah. Not everybody's been started a business with their mom before. That's pretty <laughs> cool. Tell us the backstory there. I mean, certainly when I, you know, when we went and talked to uh, in investment folks, I think uh, mom and son is the least likely <laughs> venture capital funded um, uh, founder set out there. But um, no, you know, but I, uh, I started working with my mom after uh, college. I dropped out of college, actually. And I had been building some websites in high school and into college and uh, her clientele. You know, this is sort of in the in the transition between the offline and the online world um, in the late 90s, early 2000s. and they started needing websites. She was running a small, uh, small business marketing consultancy. Uh, and I, I pitched in. So we were a web design business from 01 all the way through to yeah, even 05, 06. We were still doing some web design work. And uh, I actually enjoyed it. I, you know, I think I have a little bit of a creative side that I occasionally exercise. I wasn't particularly great at it, but um, enjoyed that work. And then once we... Um, once we got started, we, we found that we were terrible business people um, and we were pretty deep in debt already in 2004 and, uh, and it got worse in 05. Uh, we, I think at, at our height owed $500,000, uh, just under $500,000 to, you know, banks and credit cards and equipment loans that we'd taken out for a consulting business. And if, you know, I think a bunch of your listeners probably have operated in the consulting world and and you know the one advantage is it doesn't cost much money you can work from home you don't have to hire people unless you have money to pay them with well we didn't do any of those things you know? what was the big how did you ring up 500k in debt what was the biggest mistake you made there to become uh, we we owed about a hundred and I think it was maybe around $130,000 at one point. And then we stopped being able to make the minimum payments on the debt. And that's when the penalties and interest, you know, it, within six months, we owed 500K. 
Wow. So this so is like you, credit card stuff and yep. really penalizing debt. Exactly. Yeah. You, you know, the credit card rate back then, they went from, you know, whatever the, oh, you know, 0% interest for the first two years promotional offer to 24.5% interest, you know, overnight. How did right? you and, get out from under that 500K in debt? Um, and frankly, the, the SEO side of the business is what did it. You know, I had started this blog uh, called SEO Moz. And as that started to take off, I was invited to some conferences and events. And I got on some stages. There'd be a line of people to talk to me afterwards, people who'd, who'd read my blog and who saw me speak. And they would say, hey, you know, we're looking for someone to help us out with this. We'd exchange business cards. Uh, you know, we, I, I built up some clientele that way. And we managed to dig ourselves slowly out of debt over the next two and a half, three years. So basically by 07, I think I remember the middle of 07, we finally paid off our last, uh, last bit of debt. Fantastic. And so tell me about the transition from a consulting company into a software company. Yeah. So that, um, and uh, the, the book obviously goes into more detail on this stuff, but, um, that was a semi-unintentional move. We had built some software for ourselves that we used internally uh, to do work for our own consulting clients. I, I really wanted to share it with people and you know show it off. And I thought, hey, we'll get more consulting business if we show people our super cool tools that you know um, just show how good we are at this stuff. And Matt, our uh, uh, our developer was like, Rand, we can't, we can't open this up. You know, the, the demand, the bandwidth on the servers would, would overwhelm us. You know, everything would run super slow. It'd break down. Uh, there's too many people who visit the blog. We can't do it. So I said, okay, well, Matt, what if we put up a little like PayPal paywall, right? You have to PayPal us 39 bucks a month and then you can get access to it. Would that cover the costs of whatever and, and prevent enough people from coming through to, to burn it down? And Matt was like, yeah, okay. All right. So over the holidays, um, in 2006, he, he did that. And then in February of 2007, we, we launched our software subscription, which we didn't, we didn't know what SaaS was. We didn't know what venture capital was. We didn't know what cost of customer acquisition was or any of these things or churn rate, but we launched this service and six months in, I think by July, it was doing as much revenue as the consulting business. And we kind of went, Whoa, what is going on here? We are getting, you know, hundreds of people who have signed up for this and, and they're just paying us. They're using this thing that we built one time other than Matt doing a little maintenance work on it. The money's just rolling in this. This is a great business. Um, and we, that, that was us discovering self-service software as a service. Fantastic. And so you mentioned it was doing about as much as the consulting. So what would that have been at that time? Like, are we talking a million in revenue, a couple million in revenue? What was that? Oh, not even, no, not even close. Um, you know, we were a very small company. I think there was maybe six of us. So I think we were doing about, I think in total for 07, we did maybe 850,000 in revenue, half consulting, half software. Got it. Okay. That's helpful. And so from that point, where, where did you go from there? So at some point, you decided to bring in some external investors. Take yeah, kinda, it was kind of the other way okay. around. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it was a weird situation. So um, Michelle Goldberg, who's uh, an investment partner with Ignition Capital uh, in Bellevue, Washington, which is just across the, the lake from Seattle, 
uh, she reached out and said, hey, this this thing you're building with Moz looks really interesting. Um, she asked me to speak at uh, one of their meetings of their portfolio companies and talk about SEO, which I did. Um, they, you know, Ignition, mostly driven by Michelle, basically said, hey, is there is there another, you know, uh, place that you think you can take this company? Do you think this could reach, you know, another level, 10 million in revenue, 50 million in revenue, if you were able, you know, if you were able to put some, some money and some effort behind it? And, um, and my answer was, well, I don't know about the money side, but there is a thing that I really want to build. And that is, I don't know if you remember all the way back in the, in the early days of Google, but you used to be able to use a command in Google called link, link colon. So you could put in link colon mywebsite.com and Google would show you all the links that it knew about that pointed to mywebsite.com, which was wonderful, right? It was awesome. You could see anybody's links. Uh, you knew, you know, who was sending traffic to this site and where were the important people who were linking to it. And Google generally ordered them in order of importance, right? And they took this away because they thought it was manipulative and, and that SEOs could, could game the system with it. And I wanted to rebuild that. So my, you know, my pitch to Ignition was, sure, you give us, you know, a million dollars and, uh, and we will rebuild the back end of Google uh, the the web index and and bring this link data back and I think a lot of people pay for that uh, and they took a chance on us right they basically said okay um, if we're going to do that we're uh, we're in a, another investment firm who had also reached out uh, partnered with them Curious Office um, and so we raised 1.1 million in November of 2007 and I became the CEO of this new venture backed organization. Uh, and that, at that point, you know, we converted from an LLC to a C corp. We spent the next ten months building that product, uh, actually with a friend of my wife's from from high school, who was sort of a, a programming genius. Um, and the the product launched in October of two thousand eight, which you'll remember was a phenomenal uh, economic <laughs> Great time. Great time to start a business. Yeah. Great time to start a business. Brilliant time. I, I was in New York City the day Bear Stearns collapsed. Oh. Um, and there, there I was were a bunch of guys to... with like those brown bankers boxes walking around. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and uh, I was supposed to, I was speaking at a conference, but we also had a booth there and we had a bunch of press that was supposed to come and cover the, the event, um, you know, the launch of this, this new product from us. And, uh, and I remember I, I gave the talk and the, you know, the audience was, um, really excited and our booth was, was swarmed, but there was no press. They were all, they were all missing. They all emailed and said like, Hey, we have bigger stuff to cover today. But yeah, to be honest, we didn't even notice the economic slowdown. Maz's business by the next month was profitable again. And, you know, we grew at a rapid pace for the next six years, just, you know, hundred percent year over year growth. And how much equity did you have to give away, or I shouldn't say give away, sell, I guess, to, to, to raise the 1.1? 1. 1? Uh, we gave up ooh, 14%, I think, right around 14%. So, so still, not still a pretty great valuation, oh, given the fact that you're, you're around 850 grand in revenue uh, would imply you're, you're like over a $10 million business, even though you're... Yeah, so I think the pre-money was six or seven and the post was either 7.1 or 8.1 something like that 
got it, got it. I'll stick with podcasting instead of math, but you, you get the, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you're you close. It. Yeah. So, so great kind of great valuation. Um, you grow the business. Now, did you have to continue to raise money along the way or from that point forward, maybe talk about how you funded all this hundred percent growth each year? Um, no. In fact, I think, so a, a few things. I went out and pitched venture capitalists again in 2009, 2010, 2011, and 2012. I think I probably pitched close to 150 firms. Um, so there's a, yeah, there's a lot of people who, you know, I've had meetings with um, at one point or another trying to raise money from Oz and uh, almost everyone in those years, no, obviously everyone in those years said no. Um, some of them said no early, some of them, you know, took six months and 10 meetings to say no, but, uh, everybody said no, it wasn't until 2012 that I reached out to, um, Brad Feld, who, who, again, I knew through, through my wife. So, uh, Geraldine has run a popular blog called, um, the everywhereist it's, uh, everywhereist.com for many years. And Brad's wife, Amy was a, you know, longtime reader of Geraldine's blog. Uh, she had seen Geraldine writing about, you know, me and Moz and sent it to Brad and he'd reached out. So we had had a few emails. Um, and I, yeah, I reached out to him, had a phone call <laughs> and said, uh, Hey, you know, who, who do you think might be a good match for this? And Brad said, well, I can connect you with another, a, a number of good firms, but let me pitch you on why I think you should take my money instead. <laughs> so yes, we ended up raising $18 million, uh, from foundry in 2012. Um, but I, and I detail this in the book. I, I actually think that that second round of funding was probably, uh, with the exception of a few million of those dollars that we used to sort of rebuild a data center. I, I think most of that money was wasted and the strategic approach that we took after raising was sloppy and inefficient and unwise and actually harmed the business much more than it helped it. Um, I think very highly of Brad and Foundry. So I'm glad that we were able to build a relationship with them. But I, I think we, we made some serious missteps uh, strategically in the business. The biggest one was we took our eye off the SEO ball. You know, so in, in 2012 or 13, maybe even 2014, if you had asked, you know, a thousand SEO professionals uh, around the world, what software did they use and, and who did they think was the best? 60, 70 percent of them would have said Moz. And I asked that same question uh, on Twitter to my followers, who are obviously pretty Moz centric, uh, just a few months ago. And I think 14 percent of them said Moz. And yeah, the rest said one of our competitors, almost all of our big competitors, by the way, had their big growth years, the same years that we took our eye off SEO and tried to broaden into a bunch of other categories and, you know, used our venture capital money to try and build software and expertise and, and brand in those spaces too, spaces like social media and PR and um, yeah, content marketing and all this other stuff. Uh, big mistake. And I'd love to dig into that a little bit more before 2012. So if I'm just following along the trajectory here, 2017, 2007, excuse me, you raise $1.1 million and then you grow for the next kind of five years sort of on that capital self-funding the growth of almost a hundred yeah. percent a year. So we were, we were profitable, you know, with the exception of 08, 
we were profitable every year after that. You know, I love running a profitable business. I'm not, I guess I'm a very risk averse entrepreneur, especially for a venture backed entrepreneur. I'm very risk averse. Um, We were very close to getting profitable again in 2014 uh, when I stepped down as CEO. In fact, this, (laughs) you know, some people who are listening and, and, and some folks might be familiar with the fact that I had a ridiculous mustache, literally, you know, one of those long ones that curls around and, um, and I had to wax it every morning. And, uh, and that was because I made a bet with my um, team that basically said, hey, I'm going to grow my mustache out until we're profitable again. I thought that was going to be six months, you know, from the end of 2013. But um, yeah, when I stepped down to CEO, there was sort of a change in strategy and approach. And so we ended up being, um, you know, sort of a money burning organization for another few years. It wasn't until early 2017 that I Got to shave that off, thank God. <laughs> if you want to have a visual in your mind as you're listening, think oh. Raleigh, Raleigh Fingers. Yeah, Raleigh totally. Brewers. Exactly. <laughs> or something like that. That, is, that is precisely what I had. Yep. Awesome. Awesome. Good. Well, we got that shape, thank God. All right, moving on. Let's, let's talk about venture capital uh, because clearly you've had an enormous amount of experience and frankly, not all that good. I, I left uh, in reading Lost and Founder, I was, uh, I was stunned at the candor with which you wrote about this industry. Uh, usually a lot of the, the writing about the VC industry is, is very aspirational, right? Like entrepreneurs sure. you know, wish to be funded, hope to be funded, got funded, you know, TechCrunch, et cetera. And there's this sort of very positive kind of glow about the idea of getting funded. But when reading Lost and Founder, I kind of left that feeling a lot more um, subdued about the idea of getting funded. Maybe talk a bit about the economics of this industry, uh, some of your opinions on on, uh, on getting funded. Yeah, I think that, you know, most venture capitalists would say, something that I absolutely agree with, which is VC is wrong for 99% of companies. Um, and I think the, the challenge in there is explaining, you know, sort of who it's right for and why it shouldn't be aspirational. I, I, I think one of the, one of the problems is that many of the, not all of, but many of the biggest and most covered companies uh, in the tech world, especially, but but even outside of the tech world, have received uh, investment from these types of firms and as a result have gotten a lot of press and have, you know, acquired sort of this mythical status. And so venture capital itself has also acquired this mythical status. Um, and that biases a lot of entrepreneurs to think that, you know, VC is the you know, the ultimate mountain for them to climb. And if they, if they achieve that, they've, you know, they've reached some sort of pinnacle of their career. Um, and I, I totally understand that. I, I think one of the biggest reasons that I raised venture capital, um, both in 2007, and then again, why I was pitching so hard for it for years and, you know, spent so many days and months on the road trying to raise was because I felt that, um, I wasn't a serious entrepreneur. I wasn't a real, um, a real startup CEO unless I had tens of millions of dollars in VC. And um, yeah, that's a that's a pernicious myth that definitely needs dispelling. So, 
First off, good thing to understand is why does VC exist? And the answer is it was it, it's an industry that was created after the, um, uh, you know, I think it was it was either Nixon or Ford uh, lowered the capital capital gains tax rate to you know from normal tax rate, same as everybody else, to whatever it was, twenty percent or fifteen percent. Um, and so you could pay a lot less taxes if you had gains on stocks and investments. Um, and this is a you know obviously a massive giveaway for the rich because poor people don't generally own companies and stocks and investments. But um, as a result, venture capital came about and it, it's essentially a tax dodge vehicle, right? So if you think of it as that, which is what it is, it's taking money from limited partners, people like... Um, large endowment funds or pension funds or um, a lot of family offices, you know, billionaires and, and people like that. And then uh, putting those into funds that invest in 100 companies with the hope that two or three of them become, you know, Google, Facebook, Amazon, Uber, Lyft, um, Airbnb, those kinds of things and return, you know, 100x their money. And then another three or four companies maybe make them five to 10 times their money and the rest of them kind of die and go away, right? Uh, so your odds, even if you raise venture, are very low. You know, you got to be in the top two, three percent, top five percent to really, you know, be considered a success in that field. And some entrepreneurs do okay, even when they're not in that group, but a lot of us do not. Uh, and And I think those are all, you know, it's good to understand where the money's coming from and um, also what the what the intentions are, right? The intentions are generally beat the market, right? So make enough, make enough to beat the S&P 500, just putting stocks and uh, money into an index fund. Right. You, you mentioned a lot of us do not, and you chose the first person. Maybe talk, and, and again, in the book, you do a great job of this. Maybe you could talk a little bit about about your personal financial situation going through this? Because a lot of people assume Rand Fishkin raised $18 million. He, you know, he, he's probably got $100 million in the bank. He kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> he, he does have, let's see, I think I have almost $800,000 in the bank, something like that. So not bad, right? Um, definitely, you know, enough to be able to uh, afford some rocky times. I think, I think a lot of that money is about to go away as we, um, end up paying for some elder care for my grandparents. Um, but that, that, you know, that being said, um, yeah, it's, uh, very different than I think a lot of people's expectations, which is not to say, you know, I feel, I think I feel pretty shitty saying like, Oh, you know, you don't make that much money. My salary at Moz was $200,000 a year. You know, that's, that's a great salary. Um, but it is not, I think, what a lot of people assume. I, I get emails all the time that are like, hey, here's this investment opportunity. You know, do you, would you be interested in putting in half a million or a million to this? And I'm like, well, I don't, I don't have that money. What are you talking about? Um, so, yeah, I think there's definitely a, a big disparity between the perception of what a venture-backed entrepreneur, even one who owns you know, a lot of their company, even one who you know, has had... Um, some relative degree of success. I don't think, you know, we're not in the top 5% of foundry or ignitions portfolio, but we're probably in the top 25%, right? We, we definitely didn't die early. You know, Moz is a profitable company that, um, 
yeah, is, is doing 50 million in revenue. It's growing slowly, which I think is, you know, one of the big problems in, in venture. I think Moz is growing at maybe nine or 10% a year over year. And that number really needs to be 30% before, you know, it becomes what, what they'd consider an interesting business. Um, but yeah, the, the, you know, it's, it's very different than expectations. I don't, again, can't remember if you talk about this in the, in the book, but, and if you're, if you're not able to talk about it, I totally understand, but do you, uh, were you able to maintain a portion of Moz? So although you, you have, as you mentioned, $800,000 of, 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 of cash built up, I'm assuming you, your shares within Moz are still worth something or maybe not. Um, that, so, uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of what I, what am I allowed to say? I think I'm allowed to say that I, I, uh, attempted, you know, many times, uh, over the last, you know, 18 months, especially as I was leaving the business, um, which was on mixed terms, let's say, um, I, I went out and talked to a lot of, you know, people who buy private stock and, you know, to see if I could sell some of, uh, uh, our shares. So my wife and I own oof, maybe 17%, um, of Moz's, you know, uh, in, in common shares, granted there's, there's a very small preference stack. So the preferred shares, um, don't carry a ton of, uh, overhead, but, uh, the, yeah, the answer was no, nobody, you know, nobody was buying. Um, we sold a little bit of shares, uh, to one of our uh, investors, to Foundry, but yeah. So the, the the liquidity option for that is, I guess, Foundry decides at some point they want to sell the business. Is that something uh, will likely that, that could that could yeah that could certainly be one way that we would benefit. So, you know, the the question then is: Is somebody, you know, is Moz a saleable entity? Right? Is it something that that someone wants to buy, and when, and is it growing too slowly to sell? Is it, um, you know, if, if it does sell, what is that? What does that look like? And um, how do common shares get paid out? And all those kinds of things. So it, it's possible that at some point in the future, it will return, you know, a nice payday for us. But um, I talk about in the book, you know, this 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 offer that we received in 2010 to sell the company that. Uh, you know, that I have regretted not taking for close to a decade now. And at the risk of making you relive this, this is why I wanted to have this conversation beyond, for many reasons, but if, if I could decide one thing, it was, it was the story that, uh, that you told in the book about HubSpot. So let's, let's talk about it. It was 2010. Yep. Maybe, maybe walk us through you know, what the business was doing in the way of revenue at that point, how this kind of conversation started. Yeah, I think we had just finished a year where we did 5.7 in revenue. We had shut down our consulting business the year prior. So it was all software revenue. Um, And we were growing, you know, like I said, at at that 100% year over year rate. And um, Brian Halligan from HubSpot, who is someone I've known for, for many years, you know, sort of since he started the business, uh, primarily through his co-founder, who's a good friend of, of Geraldine and I's, uh, Dharmesh Shah. You know, Dharmesh and I have been, I don't know, phone and, and you know, tech entrepreneur buddies for, for years and years um, and, um, and always had a wonderful relationship. And so he, Brian reached out and basically said like, hey, I'd like to chat with you. 
know about Moz and and we sat down in a cafeteria, uh, uh, sort of an abandoned cafeteria that was dark with with most of the lights off just near the entrance, and uh, and he pitched me on, hey, you should you know consider joining HubSpot and you know we we'd like to make an offer for um, for Moz and and maybe open a little office in Seattle or potentially have you move to Boston, but let's you know let's talk about um, how we can make that work and. Um, I basically, you know, he came back to me with a number. Um, what was the number? Do you remember? I think it was, I think the opening was around 25 million and he was sort of, Hey, we could, you know, we could maybe go a little up from there. Um, and I came back to him with a, I think, you know, Mamaz is going to do, you know, more than $10 million this, this this year, this coming year, uh, I think, you know, 4X revenue is, is reasonable. So I think 40 million is kind of our floor. And, uh, and he came back and said, that's, that's too rich for our blood. Sorry, it didn't work out. Um, you know, if you change your mind, let me know. And uh, I was really cocky and confident and, and sure of myself. Um, you know, I, I looked at HubSpot's trajectory. I looked at Moz's and I thought, gosh, you know, we, we could be HubSpot size in just a couple of years. Um, yeah, there you go. But of course, so two things to realize about this deal. One, um, I think that it is very, I, I believe it is very likely that if HubSpot had bought Moz, two amazing things would have happened. One, HubSpot would have helped make SEO uh, more standard and helped that industry, you know, probably more than Moz and, you know, it's 10 closest competitors uh, have been able to over the last decade. I, I really believe that. I mean, HubSpot's a remarkable company and, you know, when they embrace something, um, they can translate that to millions of people. Um, and that, that would have been a really exciting thing. The second one is, uh, you know, from a financial standpoint, my mom, myself, all the Moz employees at the time, um, and our, our only investor at the time, Ignition, uh, would have made a nice amount of money uh, initially, but, but, you know, it would have been a cash and stock deal. And three years later, four years later, HubSpot went public. That stock would have been worth 20 times as much. Don't. I mean, imagine, right, you know, 10 or maybe $20 million in HubSpot stock could have been, I don't know, 200. Oops. That's a big deal. Yeah. So with regards to when Brian approached you the first time, you're doing roughly five, six million revenue, all recurring, all SaaS base you're growing 100% a year. And so what's your level of confidence that you're going to be twice as large the next year? So not 5 million, but 10 million. Like, are, is yeah. this pretty good or you almost virtually guaranteed? Once that? you, I, I wouldn't say virtually guaranteed, but, but close, you know, the, the way SaaS works is it, it very much builds on itself. You know, if you have X amount of customers, you're growing at that rate. Even if you have a slow second half of the year, um, the you know the first half is where is where most of that's coming from. So uh, high confidence, you know, you have seventy five, eighty percent. Got it. Got you, it. You really know. You often know in 
March, what your whole year is going to look like. That's helpful. So you're, you're at five and change and, and the original offer from Brian's 25. Cause some mm-hmm. people would look at that and go, that's, that's five times revenue. That's an incredible yeah, offer. Yeah. Um, and so kind of Brian's basing it on the business as it is today. And, and you're wanting to get paid for what the business is going to be worth a year from now. Exactly. Your, yeah. your multiple is four times, uh, you know, the 10 million a year from now. Yeah. Yeah. So we, you know, you, and you can look at various numbers, right? So you can take what's our current month's revenue times 12, which I think at the time was like, would have been around eight, right? Mm-hmm. Seven and a half, eight. Um, or you can look at, well, what's the year ahead, or you can look at trailing, which is what's the year behind. So there's a, there's a bunch of valuations. Some, you know, some investors, um, and buyers care mostly about EBITDA, um, or, you know, how much cash the business is throwing off versus what's the, you know, revenue and growth rate. Um, but it's, yeah, so it depends on the buyer, depends on the market situations, all sorts of things. So even if you annualize the eight and you said that if all, you know, if we just take what we do this month, Brian, and yeah. we multiply that by 12, we're at 8 million. Uh, I think maybe time. we were a little under that, that seven point something, but yeah. Right, right. For, you know, ballpark. And so again, Brian's coming in with an offer of maybe three times the business today, if you think it's eight times three to 24. So he's kind of in the three, three and a half times, you know, if we just buy the business on today's revenue. Yeah. Got it. And so where did you get the idea that business would be, should be worth four times next year's revenue. Where, where's that idea coming from? So I think it's mostly um, like, like every venture back company, right? We get to see comparables. Um, our investors sort of will show those to us. And there's a bunch of reports that come out every year that sort of say, you know, here's businesses in this field. You have to do a, a what's called a 409A valuation for your company's stock, uh, the that, common stock the for the employees. Say that again, Rand, a 409, is that what you said? Four? Yep, 409A valuation that's required by the um, Securities and Exchange Commission for uh, um, valuation of stock so that, you know, when you give out stock to new employees or to current employees, uh, it's it sets a particular strike price for that stock. And then, you know, that, that's supposed to be a fair market value estimate. And so, the you know, all these third-party uh, companies, financial firms come in and give you an estimate of what your business is worth. And they compare it to a bunch of public market comparables, which are these, these companies that, um, you know, usually have their revenues pub- public because they're, they're on the stock exchange. And so you can see, you know, what's the variation. And at the time, four to eight X revenue was, you know, pretty much the valuation of uh, public SaaS companies. And four to eight X mm-hmm. current revenue or future or trailing. Trailing. Hmm. To what degree did Michelle influence your thinking about what the company was worth at that time? Because she had, you know, she'd made the first investment. She had skin in the game. Uh, She was, so, I mean, she has skin in the game, but so little that, you know, Ignition, I think their fund was, it's, it's in the book, but I, I can't remember exactly. It was in the three or $400 million range. Right. And so let's say, um, Say Moz had sold to HubSpot and um, just for a cash price, right? So say it sold for uh, even $40 million, right? The, the, the high end. So Michelle makes six, 
that doesn't move the needle on her fund. Like it's, it's totally meaningless to her. In fact, let's say it's sold for 10 times that amount. Say it's sold for, uh, you know, $400 million. Uh, she makes 60. That still doesn't do much. That's still a, you know, Ignition will chalk it up as a win. It's nice, but that is, that's not really helpful to their fund. That's uh, drop in the bucket. And so what was Michelle's reaction to Brian's 25 million offer? It was Rand, I will support you in whatever you want to do. I got your back. You tell me, you tell me what you think is right. I will give you a bunch of information. I will, you know, talk you through the emotional side of this. I'll talk you through the financial side of this, but from ignition's perspective, if you sell, that's great. If you keep going, we'd love to keep supporting you. Pretty awesome. I mean, honestly, I, I could not have asked for a better friend and mentor at that time. I might have wished she'd given me a little nudge in the other direction, but you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Right. How have you dealt emotionally with with this potential windfall? I have a friend. <laughs> I have a friend. I'll tell you a quick story. I have a friend who um, who bought a lottery ticket. And he, his numbers came up. The only problem was that he bought a lottery ticket at 11.58 PM and uh, the, the numbers were for the next day. Oh. And literally it has had a, it has a profound, it has had a profound impact on him, his emotional well-being. Oh, wow. And I wonder, I wondered for you in a lot of ways, this was a massive lottery ticket. Like this is the super, yeah. what do they call it in, in America? I can't remember. They like the super ball. Powerball. Powerball, power yeah. Like yeah. $200 million lottery. How, how has that, um, how has that been emotionally for you over the last eight years? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I generally don't think of it that way, right? The way I think of it is um, this would have been a, uh, between a, you know, five and $15 million payday for uh, my wife and I, and, and also for my parents, right? For my mom and dad. Um, and that would have made, yeah, a lot of the things over the last decade easier in terms of um, lifestyle stuff and family stuff and being able to help people in our lives um, and, and do some of the things that we want, might've wanted to do. But no, I don't, you know, I don't have, um, I think that the, uh, the, the bigger challenges for me have been things that happened in later years at Moz. I mean, I, I certainly have regrets around that, but saying no to that particular offer. I think that would have been a, um, a financially smart move an emotionally smart move. Um, I, you know, I could have spent a few years at HubSpot, probably learned a tremendous amount and then gone on and done another startup, but that's what I'm doing now. So, you know, I, these things are all okay. Um, I think the biggest, you know, the biggest regrets I have are uh, on the financial side are just, hey, that would have been a tremendous amount of security uh, for us. And it would have been, um, it would have felt like a great win. But, I, you know, I think the, the really good part is I feel like as a result, I have a lot more humility. Right. Maybe, maybe that's a maybe that's a wonderful gift, too, to be. You know, a less, hey, I, you know, I built this thing and then I sold it and I'm amazing. You can be too. 
I know, I know a lot of tech guys like that. They're not great to hang out with. <laughs> so <laughs> I'll, I'll take, you know, I'll take what I can get. Um, yeah. I most of my... I can tell you firsthand as a reader, I think lost and founder is, you know, 500% better because of your humility. And if that story <laughs> gave you any of it, then it's a, a wonderful gift, even though it may not be financially rewarding. Yeah. It certainly is a, an amazing gift. Oh, your humility you. and the way you tell your story is just uh, generous of spirit beyond imagination. Oh man. Well, I, I really appreciate that. I mean, certainly, certainly part of the goal is to, um, help other folks feel less alone for going through these kinds of things. And I think that many, many entrepreneurs, you know, it won't be exactly this, but it will be similar types of, uh, roller coaster up and downs and, you know, and, and obviously, um, you know, not to spoil the end, but, but the, the last few chapters go into things like, um, you know, some of the mental and emotional issues that, um, that I suffered from. I, when I stepped down as CEO, that was, that was because I had, um, a very severe case of depression and, um, you know, I talk about the layoffs that Moz went through a few years after I stepped down and the, and the painful process therein, and some of the, you know, many, many lost relationships as a result of, you know, my actions and the company's actions and, you know, how, um, how I behaved, how we behaved over those years. Um, yeah. So I, uh, I think that this is, this is a learning process. My biggest hope is that both myself and hopefully thousands of other people who've read the book can, can, you know, um, internalize some of those lessons and not have to make those same mistakes again. Well said indeed. And before I let you go, I, I, I would be risk not to just touch on Spark Toro uh, because there's a new chapter uh, opening up for you. Maybe talk briefly about that. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, um, this is the company that I've been building for the last what, eight or nine months now. And, uh, I am, I'm excited to get to the opportunity to do that again. It's, it's funded in a very different, some, um, you know, angel investors with a unique investment structure that allows us to remain an LLC and sort of grow profitably, um, and, and do profit distributions as well. If we, if we so opt to, what does the company uh, do? Yeah. So we are right now we're, we're working on technology that will allow sort of a simple solution to a pernicious problem, which is, uh, say you are, um, a marketer or, or, a, or a startup owner, and you're trying to figure out, uh, what are the publications and people that my audience pays attention to, right? I want to know what podcast to advertise on. I want to know what conferences should I exhibit at? I want to know what, magazines and websites and, uh, uh, that I should get my, you know, um, my brand mentioned in, or where I should do some marketing of whatever kind organic or paid. Uh, I want to know which social media accounts are influential to my, to my audience in particular. That's really hard information to come by right now. Generally speaking, people have to run large scale surveys or contract a, you know, PR firm or an audience intelligence firm. And we, we think that data should be available through a search. You type in dentists in Florida and we can tell you they listen to these podcasts. They go to these events. They uh, follow these people. They uh, read these websites. And then you can go do your marketing in those places. That, uh, that is SparkToro's goal, to build a, 
uh, a search engine for audience intelligence. Fantastic. I can't wait for that product to come live. Um, what's the base, best uh, way for people to, to say hi to you? If, 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 do you want to mention a Twitter feed oh, sure. or, or yeah, Twitter is, uh, to reach out? Twitter is actually someplace I'm very active where I'm at Rand Fish. Um, and you're also, yeah, if, uh, if someone has specific questions about me or Moz or the book or SparkToro, uh, Rand at SparkToro.com is my email. Rand, the book is an amazing gift. It's called Lost and Founder, available everywhere. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.